Think back to last Christmas. Did your family embrace the true meaning of Christmas by serving and helping those around you? Or did the commercialism or Santa Claus creep in again like it always seems to in December? Well, this year, do something different by adding Soft Enough for a King to your Christmas traditions. Soft Enough for a King provides families with an activity to do together throughout the Christmas season, the spirit of service and giving. Filling the manger with strips of straw, each strip representing an act of kindness to others, reminds us to help others. This product contains a handmade wooden manger, paper straw with a space to record acts of kindness, a Christ child doll for Christmas morning, a poem, and a lovely illustrated picture book. In the tradition of classic tales like Little Drummer Boy, it tells the story of a Bethlehem innkeeper's son who helps those in need while preparing the manger for a special baby on that first Christmas Eve. This really is a new twist on an old tradition that dates back hundreds of years. Order yours today at www.softenough.com and may the Lord warm your shoulders this Christmas season. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I am once again sitting sitting in for your host, Bill Real. My name is Chris Bloxham, and it's an interesting night. It's uh, October 4th, 2015, Sunday evening, so conference has just ended. And I wanted a chance to interview Bill while his thoughts about conference were fresh in his mind and also turn the tables on Bill a little bit. Uh, some of those that have you been listening to Bill for a long time will realize that he has recently been interviewing several scholars in our church, Richard Bushman, Adam Miller, D. Michael Quinn, Terrell Givens, and, and others. And he's asked them a series of questions, and they're, they're pretty difficult questions. I thought, and so did Bill, we got together and thought that wouldn't, wouldn't it be interesting to ask Bill those same really, really difficult questions and see how he'd answer them. So he's agreed. Bill, are you there? I am excited to be here. Glad to, to be back on with you, Chris, and to have this conversation. Fantastic. Did you enjoy conference? I, uh, I loved conference, but I'm, uh, you know, having come through my faith transition, Chris, conference is very different to me. I'm picking it apart. I'm looking for talks that, that help people going through a faith transition or LGBT, uh, individuals or feminist. Um, and so I just look at conference differently than I did seven or eight years ago. Well, I didn't want to spend a lot of time on this, but what if we just briefly hit some of the talks that stood out uh, and, and got your your feedback while you were still freshly thinking about them? Would that be okay with you? Sounds good. Uh, one of the first talks I remember that was kind of cool was Elder Ballard. His talk, he spoke about um, he spoke about finding weaknesses in our leaders and that we should seek to see how God is working through them rather than be critical. That's not a bad talk. That's a pretty good message, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and I think the the thing he really hit on too was he talked about testimony meetings and he talked to I mean he it seemed like he was adamant and kind of rebuking those who like to tell stories and go on and on and he simply said, "Look, be short, be sweet, share a brief testimony." He used the word brief several times. That I hope is something that now gets some emphasis since now we've got it in a general conference talk. Excellent point. How about Elder Anderson where he spoke about how we should give Joseph a break? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm all for that, giving Joseph Smith a break. I think that in some ways we'll never really understand the complexity that's Joseph Smith, especially when it comes to polygamy and, and Book of Mormon translation and, and such things. So while the critics like to really paint Joseph as a bad guy who's, who's out to, to make money and, and has this high sexual desire, which is why he's practicing polygamy the way he is, uh, I much rather kind of lean with Elder Anderson and say, look, we don't quite understand what's going on. Let's, 
let's cut uh, Joseph some slack. I will add, though, that Elder Anderson kind of implied that we should wait till we get to the other side to to really ask these questions of Joseph. But I think it's fair game to look into history and to study it out here as well. I agree with you. Elder Christofferson um, talked about how we need an institutional church and the purpose of the church on the earth. What uh, what are your thought what are your thoughts about that? I hope sometime tonight you'll ask me how I define the church. I I liked Elder Christofferson's uh, talk. I know that uh, often when I'm wording to others how I how I define the word church, I like to talk about this idea of a collective church and an individual church which scripture speaks of. And we'll hit on that later. But I seem like Elder Christofferson was hitting on that same kind of idea though very subtly. Uh, in a way that says, hey, the church has a purpose. This is what it is, but not to make it bigger bigger than that, if that makes sense. It does. And um, don't worry. I plan on asking you about your ideas on the church. You asked the scholars that same question, so you won't uh, you won't be able to escape that. Okay, so sounds good. Get ready. Excellent. Um, another, another question I wanted to ask you was, did you you notice that during President Monson's talk, towards the end, he seemed he seemed quite frail? Uh, didn't two men come and, and help him back to a seat, yeah, it seems like? Yeah. yeah, it looked like that was the case. It looked like about the last f- two minutes or so of his talk, he started to kind of hunch closer and closer to the mic, and he began kind of adjusting the way he was standing several times. And then about the last 30 seconds of his talk, he it became very difficult for him to find the right words to say. He started repeating several words a couple of times, and it just got really awkward. And it was obvious that his body was was not holding up well to to having to stand there for 15 minutes and give a give a talk and just as he closed and the camera panned back it looked like as you as you just pointed out two guys walked up and likely assisted him uh, back uh, to his seat yeah it's, it looks like age is really taking its toll on on our prophet yeah unfortunately how about elder nelson uh you remember he told the story about the child he wasn't able to save and how he he wept all night his wife come came to him and told him if asked him are you done crying cuz get your clothes on let's get back to the lab and let's figure out how to how to learn from it and he then drew the parallel to how he was able to save president kimball's life did you did you see how did you feel about the talk i know there was some back and forth online some people felt disturbed by the message when he started to speak about uh, women's roles. Did you see it overall positive, or did you? Was it a little disturbing to you? Well, first, let me say that my my previous listening to Elder Nelson's talks in previous conferences, the only one that really stood out was him making this this kind of I don't, I don't want to use the word ignorant, I guess, in a bad way, but this ignorant joke of like a print shop and an explosion and and talk about the Big Bang theory, and it kind of seemed to show a. a a lack of understanding of the science of that. And, and I've often felt like Elder Nelson comes off at times as very two-dimensional. But this seemed like a very three-dimensional talk. It almost kind of led us in to see his soul a little bit. And and him him crying on the ground and his wife saying, look, are you done crying now? That really kind of gave us a, a little piece into who he is and, and some of the things he's had to overcome in his life. And I thought him talking about the feminist issues, essentially asking the sisters to stand up, to take their place, to fill their role, to to speak up in ward councils, to not be afraid to move above and beyond where their current status is within the church. I thought that was uh, well needed and, and really good. I mean, he certainly finished off the talk kind of drawing a few lines and, and maybe backing off a little bit, but but the majority of the talk I thought needed to be applauded. Um, 
How about the star of, of conference, the product placement by Devin Durant when he, <laughs> when he talked about, about, uh, Ponderize. I wonder if it, do you think it's possible we could be kicking off a new era of product placement in church talks? Oh, this one deserves, I guess, a little <laughs> background story. You and I have been laughing kind of throughout the day. So he gives this talk and he tells you he's invented this word ponderize, which as you and I just talked about, that word actually was created over a year ago by somebody else outside of Mormonism. But he creates this word ponderize and he uses it so much in the talk. You can just tell it's like, this is going to be what the the memes are going to say on Facebook when people start sharing these pictures with with words and stuff attached to them. That this is going to be the keyword of conference, and he's overusing it. And I'm looking at my kids and my wife, and I'm like, guys, I don't even think ponderize or ponderizing is a word. I mean, does anybody want to look this up? And I think he's going to own a. I think he's going to owe a royalty to the to the guy that just wrote a book about it. It's on Amazon. And the name of the the name of the book is Think on These Things: A Time to Ponderize by Reverend David E. Morrison. So, so somebody else has already invented the word, and now we have somebody else claiming copyright uh, <laughs> I don't, uh, rights to it. And it seems like maybe there's some infringement going on. This might be a legal issue for the LDS Church uh, law team, McConkie, McConkie, McConkie. So, just to share a little more background in this, so his son and and his wife, his son and his daughter-in-law, uh, create a website on September 27th, a week before conference happens. And this site is loaded with t-shirts that emphasize the word ponderize. And these t-shirts originally on the website cost $19.99. So as soon as conference is over, the site gets made live. And as soon as it does, people in the blogger and are discovering right away what's going on here. This just doesn't smell right. This is fishy. Somebody couldn't do this this quick. And so a couple of uh, computer hackers went on and tried to find out who registered the site. Here it is uh, his son. I think David is his name. Uh, his son David and his wife. And within, you know, 45 minutes, this negative publicity starts. He ends up changing the price of the t-shirts down to $9.99. So now it's a huge deal. It's a great discount, you know? So everybody's getting the shirts for basically, he's doing it basically at cost. And uh, another 45 minutes or so goes by. He raises the prices back up to $17.99, but now tells you that the profit in the shirts is going to go to the church missionary fund. Within about another hour, all of a sudden, his site changes again. He now puts on his about page uh, who he is, and he is the son and the daughter-in-law of this general authority. Uh, they thought it would be a good idea, and he has a Facebook page where they kind of half apologize. And then uh, about another 45 minutes later, their contact link to their page went down. I guess they didn't want anybody else emailing them and expressing any thoughts on their T-shirts. So it's been kind of a weird day in terms of that talk. I think most of your average Mormons don't have a clue that that just happened, and they're probably still excited about this word ponderize, but it sounds like it was almost the family's way to capitalize on creating a word that didn't exist uh, other than this guy on Amazon that was writing a book. Well, it sounds like when that talk becomes part of the teachings for our times, um, you'll have you'll be able to give quite a lesson on it. Yeah, I think that will make a very exciting lesson uh, <laughs> to help the uh, adult Sunday school class know where the word ponderize came from and why it was created. That would you be think it'd be appropriate to wear your ponderized T-shirt to church that day instead of a suit and tie? Yeah, I think they, they when they originally did this, they were trying to combine the words ponder and memorize. But somebody on Facebook decided what they really were doing was combining the words ponder and monetize as uh, as the way to come up with ponderize. So uh, anyway, it's just a strange thing, and it just reeks of not appropriate. Uh, we've had recently – you're aware of this. We've had recently a few – 
people out in Mormonism accuse me of being uh, a priest crafter, but I would speculate that this would be a better example uh, than Mormon Discussion Podcast. Yeah, this seems like it would be a prime example of priest craft. <laughs> right. I mean, they create they create a website around a general conference talk before the talk is even given where they sell t-shirts that publicize the name or the word that the guy uses that never even existed before he gives the talk. It just I, I Well, you got to you got to give it to him. You got to give him some credit yeah. for the uh, business mind there. Yeah, this was definitely in the works for more than a week. This was well planned out. I mean, he had, I'm just picturing the three of them sitting around a dinner table saying, look, okay, so I've got a 15 minute talk to give. I'm thinking what I'll do is I'll just make up a word. We got to figure out a way to, you know, make some money on this. I don't know if that's what happened or not. I'm speculating. <laughs> I'm saying this allegedly, but it certainly paints a funny picture mm-hmm. in our head. Well, let me, let's, let's move on to the, um, to the questions. But before, before we move on from a conference, let me ask you just one final question. Do you think it's important to look for positive messages during conference? Or do you think we ought to take conference like we would, uh, a demonstration at college where we are being presented evidence or being presented thoughts, positions, and, you know, we think through them, analyze them, talk about them with our families, or do you think we should really try to concentrate and only pull out the positive from conference? Well, I think you should do both. I think you should discuss the positive and the negative. Uh, I don't think you can have a general conference go by where where everything is positive. I know, you know, seven, eight years ago when I was kind of in that black and white stage seeing things very rigidly, conference was amazing to me. Every talk touched my soul. And as I went through my faith transition, it got to the point where I was simply looking for just one talk that would speak to my heart. Last general conference, not this, not this past weekend here, but last general conference, it was Elder Uchtdorf's talk on grace, which just absolutely, I, it was something I could just devour for a month and, uh, and appreciate and, and love. Um, but this last conference here that just happened this weekend, as well as the one that happened a year ago, was the first two times in my life as a member of the church where I felt like there was not a single talk that truly spoke to me, like something I could just just pick up and read and listen to over and over. And uh, and I'm hoping in the midst of that that certainly that doesn't happen on a regular basis. But I if I, if you can't take anything positive away and all you're left with are things that are frustrating or things that uh, – sometimes people can even see a call to repentance as being negative – and and I think we certainly could look at conference this past weekend and pick out messages that said there's things we need to improve on. I certainly felt that. But even if there's things that are negative, I think we should have discussions with our kids and with our spouse and, and find ways to kind of talk about those things to kind of give everybody a chance to kind of think those ideas through and give people room to kind of come up with where they stand. Well said. Let's get going. Um, question number one, what does the phrase, the church is true, mean to you? How do you, how do you see the church? So the word true to me means something that, you know, stands the test of time. So if I say, for instance, a level in carpentry is true, it means it, it is dependable. You can depend on it. It's not going to, to fail you. And so for me, the church is certainly something I can depend on. It is, it's not going to shift uh, too quickly. It's going to, to certainly be supportive of me and my family when we have needs. It's going to give me opportunities to serve. Um, I'm not trying to dodge the, the question. When I say the church is true, if I were to stand up in church and I say, Hey, I have a hope that the church is true. What I would be implying there is one is that I truly do hope the church is true. I truly hope that God is working within the restoration and that, that in some level he has authorized the church to carry forth its work. 
But I also would nuance it a little bit and go back to what I first started to say there, which is that the church is dependable. It is true. It is, it is something that uh, one could lean on and, and come to and recognize that it's going to be there when you need it. Okay. Well, following up with that, what would you say to the question that the Book of Mormon is true? The Book of Mormon is messy. Elder Holland gave a talk of, Ten years ago or so, where he gave an interview on PBS and he talked about the historicity of the Book of Mormon, and he he implied that members could hold a non-historical view and still be members of the church, but that he felt that was going to be a tough line to hold. I, wait a minute, wait a minute. Sure. Let me let me ask you straight. Then, are you saying that you would support a view where you could become or you could stay a member of the church, not believing that the Book of Mormon is historically true? That there were no gold plates. Yeah, I think that – well, first off, I'm not saying that's what I actually believe. But yes, I do think that I would allow others and myself, if I ever came to that point, to hold that kind of ground and stay in the church. I think how we define scripture within the church is different than perhaps how scripture was intended to be defined by the authors of it, both in the Old and New Testament. Uh, even LDS leaders have given us room to see – different things within the Old Testament, for instance, as figurative. And so where is that line? I don't think there is a hard and fast line. So for some members, if they see the Book of Mormon as scripture, meaning that it draws them closer to God and to Christ, and they choose to or feel compelled to see that book as non-historical, but still see it as having value and still want to hold the teachings in it as true, then I would certainly want to make room for them within the LDS church to be fully in, fully faithful, fully able to participate. Now, that's going to pre- now that's going to set up me answering the question of where do I stand on the Book of Mormon. So, I hold out hope that the Book of Mormon is about real people, that Nephi really was a real person, that M- Captain Moroni truly did hold up the title of liberty, that uh, Moroni uh truly did take a set of gold plates and bury them uh, on a hill for the prophet Joseph Smith to find. But I think I've said this in a previous interview, I no longer care about Book of Mormon historicity, not that I think it's not historical or that I think it is. Rather, I think the question is too messy to prove one way or the other, and I'm just really comfortable holding the ground that the Book of Mormon is good for me. I like it. It has value to me and my family. It draws me closer to the Savior. I feel like I'm better able to access Christ's grace through the Book of Mormon, and I find its teachings to be true in that they hold up. The fruits of those teachings bear witness in my life. And so from where I stand, I'm perfectly comfortable saying I I, I know the Book of Mormon's true in terms of what it contains, and I hope the Book of Mormon is true in terms of the historicity of what it's about, but I feel really comfortable holding that ground. Okay, fair enough. This next question, though, this is going to be a little harder. I think it's it's hard for all of us to answer. So, uh, I'll try to a- I'll try to ask it in a way that uh, is as gentle as possible. I'm assuming that you have spiritual experiences on a regular basis. That you regularly feel the spirit. How do you distinguish between the spirit talking to you and your own emotions? It's a, it's a great question. It's one I've thought about. Numerous times as I've tried to answer that question for others and, and hear what others' perspectives are on that idea. For me, emotion kind of stands on its own. You, you go to a haunted house, you get scared. If you listen to a song that has a lot of meaning and you're liking the beat, you're going to feel some emotion connected to that. 
On the other hand, you can also intellectualize things to the nth degree and miss the spirit of things. The scriptures seem to counsel that we learn things both by study and by faith. So the way in which I discern things is I, so let's just say Elder Nelson's talk today. Uh, Elder Nelson gives a talk. I, I listen to it. I weigh first my feelings on it and also what my mind is telling me in terms of what I know about church history, church theology, about culture, about the way in which people treat each other, about the way in which I think God expects us to to serve each other and to treat each other. And I say, does that feel right? Does it feel true? Once I kind of gauge that, then I start thinking about uh, what is said within the scriptures. What What kind of declarative statements do we have from God on those issues? And I'll think to myself, okay, what does God have to say about this? If God is real and, and the God of the restoration is real, what does he have to say about this idea, this principle? I'll weigh that. And at some point, too, then I've got to take this to the Lord and say, okay, Heavenly Father, there's maybe a little bit of confusion here. I'm thinking this. I'm feeling that. Where do you stand on this? And see if any extra clarity comes. Sometimes it does. Uh, sometimes it does not. And uh, it's, a ma- it's a messy thing. You just have to kind of... Work your way through it the best you can. Hope that you're grabbing onto truth as close as you can, but recognizing that even church leaders screw up what they think is truth in major ways. And now admittedly in the, for instance, the race and priesthood uh, essay. So if they can screw it up really bad, then who am I to think that I can nail it perfectly? And so I'm just going to have to become comfortable with that messiness. So let me ask you um, a practical question. Sure. Um, do you often give your children blessings if they're sick or going back to school or blessings of comfort, that type of thing? We do the blessings back to school every every year. And if my kids come to me and want a blessing, uh, my one of my daughters does that somewhat frequently where she'll come and say, Daddy, I don't feel good. Can you give me a blessing? And so that certainly does happen. Do you feel that – how do you distinguish between your own feelings as a father and what you want to tell her – and what the spirit is constraining you to say. Is that easy for you? Do you see a clear demarcation line or is it blurred? It is blurred. And part of that I strike up to the fact that I'm a, I'm a father and Heavenly Father is a father. And so on some level, the two of us want probably for the most part, the same things for this, this child that I care deeply for. Yet at the same time, there's going to be times where, and there have been, where I've given blessings and felt a thought into my mind that wasn't something that I would have naturally considered to say. And so I strike that up to having come from God, but whether it really does or not, I mean, who of us knows? I mean, how many times have, have we, have we blessed somebody to, to get better and they don't? How often have we not blessed somebody to have anything special happen? And a few days later, they come up to us and say, Hey, I really thank you for that blessing. It meant a lot and it helped a whole bunch in my life. And yet we felt kind of a stupor of thought perhaps in, in the blessing. Again, I, I wish there were nice, clean answers for this, but uh, I think when it comes to spirituality and spiritual things, there is no perfect cut-and-dry way to know for sure that you're receiving uh, inspiration from God. I agree. The reason I ask the question is because I think it's something we all share in common as fellow travelers uh, on earth. We, I, I think we must. it must take a lifetime to figure this out, and possibly we never will. Um, but I appreciate your answer. I appreciate you being willing to take on the question. So most members take the title of prophet to mean someone who regularly speaks with the Savior and is guided and directed in what they say and do by the Savior on a personal face-to-face or, or a very, very intimate basis. What do? How do you define the word prophet? 
This is, to me, the toughest question you're going to ask tonight, knowing what I've asked the other uh, interviewees that I've talked to. Because this is this is a temple question in a sense. Do do I sustain President Monson as prophet, seer, and revelator, and as the only person on the earth who who is authorized to exercise all priesthood keys? And then do I sustain the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency also as prophets, seers, and revelators? And this is really the temple question I have the most trouble with, and I, I suspect that a lot of the listeners probably struggle with it as well. I. Uh, the way I look at it is that Bill, let me, these let me, men... Let me interrupt you. Why is this one the most difficult question for you? You're throwing me a little bit. There's a lot of hard questions in the church. This is the hardest question for you? This is because I don't... So prophets prophesy, seers see, and revelators revelate. And yet I look at the 15 men we've had over the course of my 18, 19 years in the church now, and I see very little prophesying, seeing, and revelation. And and I'm talking in terms of the the church told me that these men were prophets in the same way that Moses, Noah, and Abraham were prophets. And those men gave very dramatic revelations, performed very dramatic miracles, and spoke face to face with the divine. And in my in my limited human distanced relationship from those 15 men, since I don't interact with them daily, and I am certainly susceptible to human failings myself, I don't see dramatic miracles, dramatic revelations, or them speaking face-to-face with the divine in the same way that the church told me those men were just like Moses, Noah, and Abraham. And so question seven for me is tricky for that reason. Okay, now that we've now that you covered that really well, how do you define the office of prophet? So I, I look at those 15 men and specifically President Monson and I make, I make the assumption, good assumption, bad assumption, who knows? I make the assumption that these men have some really serious interaction with God when they first start off in this calling. Enough, enough to be able to bear witness that they know this work has God involved in it and and from that point forward, I have to make the assumption that Jesus Christ or Heavenly Father interact very little with them because I just don't see the outward uh, manifestation of what I think. And again, I'm making an assumption there, what I think that would entail. If Jesus showed up, to, if I was an apostle and Jesus showed up once in a while to check out our meetings and to share some thoughts with us, I would expect to then go into the world and have something dramatic to share some really strong shift maybe on something or some really strong uh, revealing of some event for people to prepare for or whatever it may be. Because that's, that's what we get in the past. We get John the Revelator telling us how the world's going to come to an end. We get Noah being told to build a boat. We get Moses being uh, led every, every jot and tittle along the way to, to lead the Israelites out of Egypt and uh, through the desert for 40 years into the Promised Land. And so I just assume that these men hold those offices. They are prophets, seers, and revelators in terms of the office they hold. If God ever does choose to give a major revelation to the church or to the world, he will do so through those men. But that at present, he chooses, for whatever reason, to essentially stay hands-off and be involved so very little that it is essentially 15 good men doing the best they can, making the best decisions they can, without any overly direct 
manifestation or direct influence from the Savior or Heavenly Father. So what I'm hearing you say is, and I want to put words in your mouth, so correct me if I'm misspeaking, but what I'm hearing you say, you don't think that the 15 brethren that are leading our church see God. Right. And, and Elder Oaks seemed to imply that himself when recently he said, look, we are special witnesses of the name of Christ in that we witness of his plan, his work, but we are only special witnesses of Christ in the same way that all members of the church are special witnesses of Christ in their interactions with the Holy Ghost. And so I look around at the average member of the church and I know they haven't spoken face to face with Jesus. And so I have to assume that Elder Oaks is kind of pulling back the curtain a little bit and he's telling me that, hey, we haven't spoken, at least not often, we haven't spoken directly to Jesus Christ. And hence, we are simply working under inspiration of the Holy Ghost. We are working under the influence of the Spirit. And we don't generally, and again, maybe it happens once or twice, but we aren't generally being led directly by the Savior himself. Perhaps those interchanges with the divine are too sacred to discuss. That could be the case, and the brethren in this dispensation seem to indicate that quite often. It does seem uh, odd that prophets, seers, and revelators in past dispensations seemed overly eager to share with you those direct interactions. We could flip through the scriptures and see where Moses and Abraham talked to God face-to-face. We could see where Peter is in prison and tells us that two angels come and, and deliver him from prison. We are told that when the Savior is resurrected, that an angel moves the rock back. And, and scriptures are full of those stories. And Joseph Smith himself seems to have given us, and the early leaders in this dispensation, seem to have given us visitations of the Savior at the Johnson Farm in Hiram, Ohio, or in the Kirtland Temple, or in... Uh, in Nauvoo, um, we, we just get lots of those kinds of stories. And it just seems now the last, you know, hundred years, these things become way too sacred to share in the midst of a time when people are leaving the church in, in regardless of what your point is on this, your advantage is on the statistics, people are leaving the church in large numbers. And it would be a great time to stand up and proclaim revelation and say, look, the Lord still speaks. Are you okay? Uh, would, well, I don't want to interrupt you, but are you? Are you completely comfortable and are you okay following a prophet that by your feeling has probably not seen God? You're, you're okay following a prophet like that? Joseph Smith tells me that a prophet is only a prophet when acting as such. And so I think Joseph himself gives you the room to only hold on to those things that you feel influenced from the Holy Ghost that it came from God. And so if you feel it didn't come from God, Joseph Smith in that quote seems to give you permission to recognize that a prophet, when not acting as a prophet, is not a prophet. And hence, you are not bound by those words. Elder Christofferson and Elder Anderson, about five years ago, reiterated that idea when they said that everything taught by a given leader on a given occasion is not binding on the church. And so again, I feel permission to take those things I feel come from God or testify or reiterate things that came from God in a previous time. And the rest of it, I'm happy to set off to the side until I have a better grasp of where it came from. Okay. The next topic I wanted to cover with you was scripture. Recently, Elder Ballard, I'm sorry, not Elder Ballard, Elder Bednar was asked a question about women in the priesthood. 
After he gave his answer, I guess it was to a group of missionaries, a sister missionary asked a follow-up question, and she asked where in the scripture she could find some of the information that he had been sharing. And his answer was purported to be, I am scripture. What does scripture mean to you? How do you define scripture? Well, you you just threw out two different things. Let's, let's tackle the first one. The first one is I'm very uncomfortable when Elder Bednar or any other leader says something like that. Because again, the reality is, I'm scripture, sure, when the Holy Ghost is working through me, and we've also set a standard in our church that scripture or canon only becomes such when it is, when those specific words, when those specific revelations are sustained generally by the church. And so for any leader to stand up and say, you know, anything out of my mouth, you just take because I am scripture, uh, that makes me really uncomfortable. Well, Brigham, Brigham Young used to say that. Yeah. Brigham, Brigham Young was famous for saying things like that. Yeah, but Brigham Young also taught that the Adam God theory came by revelation and that we should shed another man's blood well, to uh, to redeem him and send him to the celestial kingdom. <laughs> so, so and he got a lot of things wrong, too. right? And that's the point. And so, anytime you just say, "Hey, take me at my word," because I am Scripture, you're setting up a standard that really can't be held to by reality. The the second part of your question, which is this idea of how I look at Scripture. I'm really comfortable with lots of scripture being figurative or allegorical. There's the the talking ass uh, in the Old Testament. I'm perfectly comfortable with that being figurative. I look at uh, Elijah when some teenagers are mocking him and he prays to God that God would redeem him from these uh, these young kids and a she-bear comes out of the woods and mauls them to death. I'm completely comfortable saying that God was not involved in that at all, but rather the she-bear comes out just happenstance, just coincidence that this bear comes out of the woods and mauls these two kids. And what is Elijah to do but to credit God for it happening? I look at the flood reported in Noah, uh, in Noah's time, and I'm really not sure at this point that I can take that. I certainly can't take it as a global flood. Uh, I've tried to make it work as a local flood. That seems really difficult too. There are other scholars in the church, such as Adam Miller, who seem to really struggle with that. And so I don't know, maybe the flood's just completely allegorical or figurative. I look at the Old Testament in Genesis, and I see Elder McConkie telling us that the trees can be figurative in the garden. Uh, President Kimball told us the rib that Eve was made from could be figurative. President Packer told us that the dirt that Adam was made from was figurative. And we, we've had other people share ideas that the snake is figurative or the apple is figurative. And so once you make the apple figurative, the snake figurative, the trees figurative, the rib figurative, and the dirt figurative, you have no story left, literal, uh, on this earth of a garden and a creation happening the way the scriptures tell. Also, scriptures themselves do this. We have, I think, seven different creation accounts, uh, two in the Old Testament. You've got one in the temple. You have... Uh, two or three in the Pearl of Great Price. And so you have all these different creation accounts, and they all teach the creation slightly different. Again, I think it gives you room to see these things as figurative. You talk about Brigham Young. Brigham Young was uh, talking to, I think it was a minister of another faith, and he asked this minister, do you believe the Bible? And the minister said every word of it. And Brigham's next response is just, to me, a, a really good one-line sentence. He says, well, then you're a bigger believer than I am. And uh, Brigham seemed to be very comfortable with not every story in scripture being directly from God's mouth and sometimes even coming from bad people and portraying the story very uh, backwards from perhaps how it really happened. So I hear your answer and I, I get it on a practical level and it's rational and reasonable, but how do you, isn't that a pretty dangerous, aren't you kind of on dangerous ground? Because 
how many, how much of the words in the scriptures are divine and how much are just allegorical. And isn't it kind of simple to say, well, that's allegorical. I, that's just a story. And this over here is where God's speaking. How do you reconcile that? I don't think leaders of the church have reconciled that. Uh, again, I pointed out the ones that talk about the creation in the fall, parts of it being figurative, for instance. Elder Holland gave a talk at the last conference where he seemed to impose that the fall story had to be taken literally for us to take full advantage of the atonement of Christ as a literal uh, physical event. And so I don't think that even LDS leaders can figure out where to exactly draw that line. And if they can't do it, then certainly I've got the room to run around. You are right, though, that as we travel down this road, it would be very easy for somebody to let go of everything or to assume that all scripture is figurative or allegorical or not from God and to kind of just find their own path that would make me hesitant. I would be careful not to throw it all away. Uh, when I look at the Savior story in the New Testament, I see that story as, as to me anyway, credible. And I know some will, some will shake their head perhaps at me saying that. But I see Jesus as credible. I see the, the story of his life and death and resurrection as credible in terms of the witness statements that we have. Uh, I just don't find much of the Old Testament to have that same kind of uh, grounds to defend it on. Yeah, if uh, Christ is the God of the Old Testament, he sure doesn't seem like the same guy that we read about in the New Testament. Right, right. He's punishing people. He's killing, like, genocide of, of mass amounts of, of tribes of people and groups of people. And and I think, too, when we look at Scripture, and I'll just give one more example, and it's one of my favorites. When I look at the Book of Mormon, I read early on, and I've shared this a couple times in the podcast, I see Nephi as a very self-centered, arrogant uh, kid. And he seems to always tell everybody how good he is. He'll do everything God commands. When the angel beat, or not when the angel, when the angel shows up and, and Laman and Lemuel have beat up both Nephi and Sam, um, Nephi's comment, when he reiterates what the angel says, he said, the angel said unto my brothers, why beatest thy brother Nephi? It's almost like he forgot the fact that Sam was being beat up too. He just kind of, you know, he's my little brother and who cares? He's not a major part of the story. That really shifts when Lehi dies. When Lehi dies in Second Nephi, I think it's chapter 4 or chapter 7, all of a sudden Nephi becomes very humble. Uh, Lehi blesses the entire family, yet Nephi doesn't share anything about his blessing. And then he begins to tell us how he gives in so easily uh, to temptation and sins uh, so easily. And I think that begins to give us a glimpse that even Nephi is super biased as he writes down his story. And so while he might be a real person... And his stories might be uh, historical in some sense. I also would even just give room to Nephi that he's exaggerating, at times perhaps even severely. Hmm. Interesting. I'd like to move on to church history here. Uh, in your latest podcast, I think it's the most current one at this time, you released a, an episode titled Seer Stones, Folk Magic, and Alvin's Hand. And you throw a lot of stuff out there. I mean, you, you cover a lot of, a lot of ground, a lot of sources. You have Joseph digging around on the Hill Camorra two years before Moroni's visit in 1823. You allude to the idea that Joseph is disturbing Alvin's grave. You've got magic circles, guardian spirits, tells of throat slit Spaniards. I mean, it is a, it is a, it's a lot of stuff, Bill. So how do you, how do you make that work from a faithful perspective? So some of it's tough. Joseph going to the hill two years before Moroni, that certainly complicates the story. Uh, you just have to ask yourself on some level how credible, I guess, some of these sources are. In some places, we have one account or two accounts, and those two accounts might be really strongly uh, connected. 
And, and so you, you have to place how much trust you're going to put in each one of these facts or details that are being shared with you. I don't really struggle with Joseph um, being a town scryer or a seer. I don't really have a problem with him putting a rock in the hat and telling people where their lost cattle are or, or telling uh, you know Mrs. Jones where she dropped her earring. That doesn't bother me. But I certainly you know can see why some members would struggle with the the occult within early Mormonism's history. It certainly used to bother me, but I've just grown comfortable with it. I've just kind of as I've delved into these sources multiple times, read them over and over again over the last eighteen years, had to reframe what that means versus what the church has told me it means, and I've just gotten to a place where I'm okay with Joseph being involved with this magical stuff and it uh it just doesn't tend to be a strain on my testimony. So clearly you've made a shift in how you see the historicity of the church. Would you would you posit the idea that all members are at some point going to have to make a shift in the stories that they were told in seminary and institute? Or do you think that those people could remain faithful members and never really have to hear anything more about the history of the church? Do you think everybody's in for kind of the same turbulent ride ahead, I guess? No, I don't. Only because I think that the only people who have to kind of reconcile all of this are people who go through several things. One is that they like to read and read a lot. Uh, if you're, if you're one that just stays away from books and you just enjoy going to church for the, the culture of it and the chance to serve and the chance to be around people you care about, then you may never have to deal with this. I know members in both my ward now and my ward in Ohio who, you know, could live to be 150 and would never think along any of these lines. On the other hand, if you're going to be a reader, if you're going to want to, if you're really, if, if truth and finding truth and discovering truth is something that's really important to you, that you will spend your off hours looking for it, then I think you'll inevitably at some point come across all of this information and you'll have to kind of deal with it. Now, there's two ways to deal with it. One is just to assume the church has given you all the right answers and to simply set the new details aside as anti-Mormon propaganda. The other option is to really look at it, really delve into it and decide what parts are biased critical conclusions that don't hold up and which parts are really historically factual truths that you now have to place into your narrative, which now forces you to deconstruct and reconstruct that narrative. I would say maybe... 20 to 30% of the church gets into thinking about these issues. And I would guess only 10 to 15% tops get to a place where they actually struggle over these and have to deconstruct and reconstruct the way in which they put the story together. Well, that's still a lot of people. If there's 15 million members of the church, you're talking what, three, four million people are struggling and having to deconstruct this. On some level, right? yeah, on some level, some of them are deeply expressing this. I think other ones just live with cognitive dissonance on a weekly basis. I mean, I know members of my old ward in Ohio that were good people. They were smart people. They were thinking people, but they were never going to take the time to read a bunch of stuff. And so when some odd fact came across, it would make them a little uncomfortable, but within a couple of weeks, they would just set it aside and just choose not to really deal with it or delve into it. And so I think a lot of members get by just with some small level of cognitive dissonance, knowing that the story doesn't really fit really well, but not being eager enough to really tackle it, knowing that it might raise issues if they do. Do you think that what we do as missionaries, I, I have a daughter on a mission right now. I had a son just come back. Um, 
Do you think that the narrative that the missionaries teach is a fair one to teach to investigators, or do you think that we need to change as a church and talk more about our talk more about our history in a truthful way? Maybe if, um, for example, if a missionary is teaching a, an African American family, should they be telling the true story, the true history of of our church when it comes to blacks in the priesthood, or do you think that the message should stay pretty? Uh, low key, uh, and, and give them just, a, just a little bit of milk in order to help them get baptized. That gateway ordinance. You, you hit on this idea of milk, milk and meat, uh, milk before meat. And, and I certainly believe that. I believe that we do need to give out milk before we do meat. The, the problem is in our church, it seems like we really never ever get to the meat. You know, you go to, you join the church, you go to gospel principles class. So first you take the discussions of the missionaries. Everything's really simple. You go to gospel principles class and yes, you get taught more things, but they're still all really simple. And then you get, go to gospel doctrine class for the adults. And while they certainly are teaching again, more things, they are taught in a very subtle, simple way where complicated ideas really don't have a chance to be discussed in the class. And, and all of that's intentional. And some of that I do think is good. When I went on the, my first date with my girlfriend who became my wife, I made an active choice not to tell her all of my flaws and weaknesses, not to just say, okay, I know we're on this first date and we're enjoying a slice of pizza, but I squeezed the toothpaste tube from the middle. Um, I like to belch a lot and, you know, I, uh, I sold drugs two weeks ago. I, I didn't do that because that's obviously setting yourself up for failure with the person that you're Plus on the date with. Plus, that's gross. You don't want to, you want to tell people that. Right. You, you have those bad habits? Yeah, sure. I'm not going to be able to be your buddy uh, anymore. I, mean, I guess we're going to have to just like go our separate ways. <laughs> all right. I, uh, I think that we all choose to withhold information from others when we talk to them, when we interact with people. The less trust we have with someone, the, new, the newer someone is, the more we hold back. But I also think that you pointed out the black issue with, with blacks not getting the priesthood prior to 78. I would sure hate to be an African-American be both feet in on this church, sign up and join and get baptized, only to find out six months down the road that someone intentionally chose not to tell me that narrative so that I would join the church. That would feel really dishonest and and would come with a feeling of betrayal. And I think on serious issues like that, we've got to find a way to work them in. Great. Very good. Um, moving along... I wanted to talk about church doctrine. Do you believe that doctrine is well? Let's let's define doctrine. Is doctrine one of those things that change? <laughs> Good luck with that. Well, let's 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 come up with a working definition at least. <laughs> All right, you you make your. Be- I want to hear. I want to hear your definition of doctrine because I've heard like seven of them and none of them work. So you go well, ahead and tell not, me your definition. I'm not of doctrine. sure that the definition of doctrine we've used for a long time really holds up anymore because the way I used to define it as a missionary and was that, well, doctrine is that which doesn't change opposed to policy in our church, which, which is subject to change, which I don't think is the case anymore. So no, Charlie Harrell would tell you that that's definitely not true. Yes, he would. (laughs) So where do you come down on the view of doctrine in light that there's been doctrines in the past that have changed, um, especially with the essays that have been released by the church. Some of these issues, especially blacks in the priesthood, used to be a doctrine, and now it's a, just a disavowed theory. How do you deal with that? So the only way I can even somewhat reasonably define the word doctrine is to say that the word doctrine is the current teachings of the church. Not that they necessarily come from God, not necessarily that they're false, not necessarily that they have a lick of truth to them either. They're just the present teachings of the church. And when I look at 
the way in which we use doctrine, it seems to me that it's an easy word for a leader to throw out there to get across the idea that, hey, I'm teaching this and I strongly urge that you follow it. Uh, that seems to be at times the way in which we use doctrine. Uh, Elder Anderson said that doctrine is easy to find. I would, uh, I would push him back on that because there are lots of doctrines that were once doctrines that are not anymore. And there are likely doctrines we're practicing today that will not be doctrines someday in the future. So I don't think doctrine is easy to find. He also said doctrine is what all 15 men teach unitedly. And I would push back against that and say we have examples in our history where all 15 men taught something to only now have the church recognize it is not true. We've also had times uh, in our history where leaders have claimed things by revelation only to have future leaders say those things are absolutely not true. And so the word doctrine, I, I think the only way you can give it any kind of merit is to say it's the present teachings of the church. It may change. It has changed before. It may be true. It may not be true. But they're the things we're going to hold to more strongly than uh, policies and procedures. So would you say there's a level higher than doctrine? Um, for example, the yeah, it's called truth. So for example, the atonement. Would you say that the doctrine of the atonement is subject to change? I think it's Second Nephi, chapter thirty-one, I believe, where throughout the entire chapter. Nephi is talking about the basics of the gospel. He talks about faith, repentance, baptism, receiving the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end. And he finishes up and he says, this is the only and true doctrine of the Father. And so what I gather what Nephi is saying is, look, there's lots of tangents. Uh, there's lots of side things. There's lots of, as Elder McConkie and Joseph Smith both said, appendages to the gospel. But the actual doctrine of the church is the principles and ordinances and the fact, as Joseph said, that Jesus lived, uh, made a sacrifice for us, that he died on the cross, that he was buried, and that he was resurrected uh, three days later. And those teachings are the doctrine of the church as far as what we're going to hold to absolutely firmly. In my mind, while it may take a long time for anything else, everything else is up in the air and is game for change. Okay, so Bill, how do you define the church is the church the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or is it the church, the larger body of Christ, anybody that accepts baptism, um, repents of their sins, and comes unto Christ? How do you define church? So I think the scriptures use the word church multiple ways. I think Christ, when talking about the body of Christ and talking about the saints, I think the New Testament implies multiple definitions. And I think restoration scripture talks about multiple definitions. So let's, let's go down this road. DNC 10 says that any who repent and are baptized are of the Church of Christ. That's in our DNC revelations. DNC 49 said, Terrell Givens has pointed this out, that there are holy men that Joseph Smith didn't even know about that the Lord had reserved unto himself. The, the idea of the collective church in the New Testament talks about the body of Christ and that the hand would say to the foot, I have no need of thee, but that all these parts are needed uh, for the building up of the kingdom. And and then I would add another quote, which is uh, Orson F. Whitney, where he talks about non-members, and he says non-members are part of God's uh, process of helping to bring to pass his work, that non-members are among the auxiliaries of the church, and he uses that word auxiliaries. As I sit back and think of the way in which I would frame the word church, 
DNC 10 talking about whosoever is, you know, repents and is baptized and comes unto me is of my church. Uh, in fact, it doesn't even use the word baptized. It just says, whoso repents and comes unto me is of my church. That seems really inclusive. That seems to be talking about anybody in the world who is facing Christ and moving his way are of his church. The Book of Mormon, uh, early on in, I think, First Nephi 13 or so, talks about that there are saved two churches only, the church of God, the church of the devil. And then it explicitly says that everyone is in one camp or the other. That doesn't seem to be talking about Mormonism and non-Mormons. It doesn't seem to be, as Elder McConkie thought, be talking about Mormonism and Catholicism. Because then you still have people on the outside, and the Book of Mormon says there are no outsiders. You're in one camp or the other. And when you combine that then with DNC section one, which says this is the true and living church, the only true and living church with which I, the Lord, am well pleased. We use that scripture all the time, but we never read the words which come after it, where Christ explicitly says, I am speaking of the church collectively and not individually. So to me, Christ, again, is using this word church in multiple ways. But when he says the only true and living church with which he is well pleased, and he says, I'm talking about the church collectively, I don't think he's talking about the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I think he's talking about anybody who repents and comes unto him. And so in our faith, we acknowledge that the founders of the Constitution were inspired. We acknowledge that the reformers that set up the restoration were inspired. We could even go so far, and I think this is reasonable, to say that they were called and authorized, meaning that God called them specifically to do that work, and obviously he also authorized them to do so. The 1978 First Presidency letter, Spencer W. Kimball and the First Presidency acknowledged that other religious leaders like like um, Confucius and Mohammed and others were given light from Heavenly Father to teach those people that they had influence on. That's a very inclusive way to see things. And so I even look at like uh, Pope Francis, and I would acknowledge that it's very possible that he is called and authorized of God to do the work that he is doing. Now, I'm not saying he holds priesthood keys, and I'm not saying he holds a priesthood office, but I'm certainly saying that in the same light that we would see the founders and the reformers and uh, and Orson F. Whitney talking about non-members being among its auxiliaries, I could certainly see Pope Francis being called and authorized within the collective church to help move the work of God forward. Uh, Orson F. Whitney said, this work is too arduous, too vast for the Latter-day Saints. Latter-day Saints make up 0.2% of the world's population, 15 million to 7 or 8 billion. And then you start saying, well, half of those 15 million, more than half, don't even go to church. And then more than half of the ones that do go to church don't hold a temple recommend. And then more than half of those don't even go to the temple regularly. All of a sudden you're saying, okay, who are going to be these righteous wheat among the tares? It's such a small drop in the bucket and it's such a narrow view. For me, when I use the word church, I'm thinking of the collective church. And I certainly recognize that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has been authorized by God to play a special role in holding priesthood keys and being guardians of the ordinances, but that they are not the only piece of the puzzle. Elder Worthlin talked about the orchestra and said there's lots of instruments. And he was talking about members of the church, that all of us have a different instrument to play and we all are important. But Terrell Givens and John DeLynn in their interview years back took that same analogy and applied it to outside of Mormonism and said, look, other churches, other non-members, they're all part of this work as well. That God in Moses 139 says, this is my work and my glory 
to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. And if we think being members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is how he's accomplishing that, that is such a narrow, minuscule, small view to hold, and I think it completely misses the boat. Are the ordinances necessary? Absolutely. Does the Is the church the only authorized vehicle to provide those and ensure that they're done right? Absolutely. But I do not give the church any more importance in the orchestra than the other instruments. And I see the church as anybody who is moving towards Christ and is facing that direction. Okay, so my question to you then is, you and I have a mutual friend that is investigating the church. And she is going to be at my home tomorrow for for uh, to meet the missionaries and to have the first discussion. And she's also invited you to be here. How would you answer her question of, isn't my church good enough? Aren't I just part of the orchestra? Why in the world would I need to join your church? Because you may uh, you may throw a wrench in the missionaries' plan tomorrow night when they give. The- well, yeah, I hope not. I hope not because obviously we're there to to help her show the value of the church to her, the the individual church to her. Absolutely. And I do see value in the church. So when I go out with missionaries and teach, before I moved here. In Ohio, I served, of course, I served as a bishop, but after that, I served as the ward mission leader, and I did that for two years. And this was after being out of the box, having a nuanced view, and I'm still, I'm meeting with the missionaries every week. I'm going out with them teaching a couple times a week at least, and uh, and having to kind of tackle, how am I going to deal with this? And for me, I take a step back, and I put myself in Heavenly Father's shoes, and I say, what does Heavenly Father want? Heavenly Father wants his kids to be happy. He wants his kids to have an opportunity to serve. He wants his children to have a chance to have opportunities for growth. He wants his children to have a support system for when things get difficult. He wants his children, if, if things get really hard and they fall down, he wants to hit his children to have people around them who love them and who will carry them for a while if need be uh, to help them out. And I say, what is the best vehicle in the world to help that out? And my first answer, I would say generally, is a church. And my second answer would be that I think the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does those things as well as any church out there. And so that, to me, is why Heavenly Father gave us the individual church, was to be a a place to serve, a place where opportunities to serve are many, a place where people around you will help you and serve alongside you, a place where you will have a chance to grow and to to learn more about the Savior and so for me, the church is absolutely worthwhile of membership, and it's absolutely worth us trying to bring people into it because of what it does for people in their lives. But I wouldn't say that being a member of the church gives you an increased chance of salvation. That would seem really unfair of Heavenly Father to go, yeah, you know, I know 99.8% of my kids, eh, they're just going to have a harder time at this. They're just going to miss out. It's going to be a little tougher for them. But these 0.2%, I just love them a little more and I'm giving them a better opportunity. That makes no sense to me. So that's the way I handle it. Okay, so Bill, how important is the priesthood then based on the answer you just gave? So priesthood to me, Elder Oaks a year ago, year and a half ago, acknowledge that sisters have priesthood power and they have priesthood authority. And so then you have to start asking yourself, where did they get that? Did they get it in the temple? Because there have been sisters who have served as Relief Society presidents, who Elder Oaks says have priesthood power and priesthood authority, who have not been endowed yet. But okay, well, maybe they got it when they got a calling. And then you would say, yeah, but there are sisters who have been to the temple who have not served in any kind of leadership calling And the church says they have now priesthood power and priesthood authority. The only logical answer is that they were born with it. 
And if they were born with it, then men were born with it in the church too. And if men and women are born with it in the church, then men and women outside the church are born with access to priesthood power and priesthood authority. So for instance, uh, in our interview with Suzette a month ago or so, two months ago, Suzette made this thought of a mother praying for her child and calling down the powers of heaven. And I would, and, and you made the comment, and I would agree with you, that if there's some mother in Guatemala who doesn't even know anything about Mormonism, she doesn't even know about Christianity, and she is praying to her God. And, and again, as far as she knows, this is, this is the God of the earth, the heaven of, of heaven and earth. This is our Father in heaven, although she may call him by a different name. When she prays for her sick child and she calls down the powers of heaven, is she not accessing priesthood power? And, and I have to argue that she is. And so for me, when I hear the statement that many are called, but few are chosen, I interpret that to understand that pretty much every one of God's children, with the exception of maybe those uber, uh, rebellious children who simply hate God and are working the opposite direction away from him uh, intentionally, those sons of perdition, that outside of that, that all of us have been called to the priesthood, but that few of us are chosen to receive offices of the priesthood within the church. And so for me, everybody has priesthood, uh, but only within the church are there keys and offices. So where do you place keys then? Only inside the church? Yeah, I would only place them in the church with the caveat that the church doesn't have all keys. Uh, President Kimball, Kimball and then also Elder Oaks recently uh, reiterated that we don't have the keys of creation. We don't have the keys of resurrection. Uh, there's other keys that we probably don't have as well. So the church doesn't have all keys, but that it is the only entity upon the earth today in this dispensation that has any keys. So in your view, is this church the only church that's called and authorized to administer the ordinances, the saving ordinances? Yeah. this. So ordinances to me are necessary, not because they have some magical power to them, not because Jesus sits up in yonder heavens thinking that if little Tommy doesn't get baptized, then all has gone you know, wrong with the plan of salvation. Rather, that – and the easiest way for me to relate this is in the in the temple interview at the very end – your bishop or stake president is supposed to read you a one-page paper on the garment. And there's a phrase in there that the wearing of the garment is an outward expression of an inner commitment to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, knowing that all of us are severely flawed human beings, that we all have really good moments where we're trying to do the right thing, and we all have really bad moments where we do things that we absolutely regret, that Heavenly Father set up ordinances as markers, as moments in time where we were doing the right thing and promising God to be willing to keep trying. They're, they're there to, to be a witness to us, not to Him. Because God knows, uh, the inner heart, right? God does not looketh on the outside, but, but looketh on the heart. We have that scripture. And so ordinances are a marker in time where we declare that we are willing to make the effort and to keep pressing forward. They're there for us. They're absolutely necessary, but isn't it beautiful when we talk about the individual church versus the collective church that the individual church was given a stewardship to provide those ordinances for everyone in the collective church, that all who have lived, are living, or will live will receive those ordinances. And so in some way, the church, while defining what it takes to be a member of it, at the end of the day, will extend those ordinances to everyone regardless anyway. It's beautiful. I, I, you know, I agree completely. It's stuff you've said before. I just, it's, it's nice to hear you repeat it and say it again. You say it so, so well. And I think it rings 
so true to so many people. I appreciate you saying it the way you did. Um, the LGBT issue. I know you're an ally. You've done so many things for that, for, for people struggling or dealing with that, especially in the church. Where are you at now? Have you, um, moved any further into, uh, let me back up. I want to get your thoughts as far as you are willing to, to go. Have you, have you had anything happen recently? Have you had anybody else reach out to you that you've been able to help? You've just, you've done so much for helping people that are trying to stay faithful, trying to stay in the church and, and deal with this issue at the same time. Where are you at? This is such a sticky, tricky issue. And in so many ways, uh, we as a church have painted ourselves further and further into a corner on it. I, uh, I've never, I don't think I've ever thought in my head or expressed publicly out in the public arena that I demand or think the doctrines of the church have to change. If, if the present doctrine of the church did change, I would certainly be excited and happy for it if it meant more inclusiveness of our LGBT brothers and sisters. But I've never demanded that the doctrine change, nor have I thought in my mind that it just has to, that I'm right and the church is wrong. But I will say that our policies do have to change. That presently, what we ask of our gay brothers and sisters is to not act on their, their normal feelings of attraction. And we don't ask, I mean, we ask, so as a, as a, as a straight member of the church, I can go out and I can get married. And I can have children and I can have a relationship with my wife and hold her hand and, and kiss her and, and take her on a walk and enjoy her companionship and, and build that life together. And if President Monson came and knocked on my door and sat in my living room and said, Brother Real, we're going to ask you to go the rest of your life separating that and letting go of it and, and never working to have that again, I would walk away from the church. Because that would seem way too hard and too difficult. And I would, I would bet if we could explain it thoroughly enough to a thousand active members of the church who are straight and gave them that same kind of argument that a majority of them would say, sorry, I can't do that either. And yet we fully expect our gay brothers and sisters to do that. And it seems unreasonable. It seems way too hard. It seems like too many of our LDS youth are, are suffering from feeling shamed and ostracized, suffering from depression, and, and way too many of them are killing themselves. And we also have incidents where parents feel the need to defend the church versus their child. They take the side of the church and kick their child out of their home, while six, seven, eight percent of people born say that they are gay, that the homeless shelters in Salt Lake City, for instance, have like a 20% of their gay homeless youth are, are gay. And so on some level, more gay LDS youth percentage wise are being kicked out of their homes than straight kids. And that just seems like a horrific, harmful thing to have happening. What I hope would happen, Chris, is that we would make room for people who are in loving, caring, legal marriage relationships, whether straight or gay, to be able to be in the church to be able to participate at least in the preparatory ordinances, such as baptism, perhaps to hold the preparatory priesthood, such as the ironic priesthood, and to be welcomed into the ward and be able to at least hold some callings in the ward so that these people don't just leave, uh, come in one door and then just leave right out 
and uh, leave the church, which seems to happen with way too many. Uh, just uh, I don't know what it is. Ninety percent of them uh, aren't staying, and maybe it's even greater than that. And we've just got to do something. It's yeah. beautiful, Bill. Your your compassion is is overwhelming. What policies, though, do you see that we could change? Our church could change immediately without changing our theology. So the first thing is church discipline. What kind of sins we choose to have a disciplinary council for and which ones we choose to absolutely not have a disciplinary council for is a policy. Um, when I combine that with the idea that some sins have you being ostracized from the church and other ones have you still participating. So, for instance, I know people who have been you know, uh, ardent uh, breakers of the word of wisdom and they've served in callings and been considered active in the church. We've had other members who have been zero tithe payers. And they have been active in the church. I even know of a situation where a husband was separated from his wife. They were not divorced. They were still legally married. They had been separated for years. He was living with another woman. And we allowed both him and this other woman to be active in the ward and to participate. And yet, for some reason, when we have a gay brother or sister who's doing those same things, who's sinning, if we want to call it that, that we simply say, sorry, but you can't participate here. And I think we could quickly, easily change that with one, one first presidency letter from the brethren. Uh, and that would at least allow us to kind of temper, uh, them feeling like they just have no place to hear within our walls. I'd like to kind of enumerate them if you, if you're okay with that. So number one would be let them activate, let them participate fully. At the ward level. And when I say fully, I don't mean, I mean, you may choose, the church may choose to say, look, we still can't condone this completely. We can't allow a homosexual man to be a bishop. We can't allow a homosexual couple to go to the temple to be sealed. But I would certainly say, look, guys, you could be the, you could teach primary. You could, um, you could be a Sunday school counselor. You could be, um, a teacher for the youth class. I don't see any reason why we couldn't do those things, uh, with one, very small change in our policy. And I would also, you're going to, you're asking to enumerate these. I would say the, the second one is just stop having church discipline automatically, uh, for these people that, because we choose as a church, which sins we'll have discipline for and which ones we won't. That's not a doctrine. There's nowhere in the doctrine where God says homosexuals need to have a disciplinary council or should have a disciplinary council or could have a disciplinary council and word of wisdom breakers should just be left alone. We don't have that anywhere. That's a policy. And so we could change that as well. Fantastic. Very good. Um, my final question would be, what other views or nuanced views have you that, that do you have that would surprise your listeners? Um, do you have anything else we haven't discussed or you haven't discussed on a previous podcast? Any other nuances? You and I have talked uh, before several times about the fall and the creation. We hit on earlier about it could be figurative. I see it as God's way of telling us, his dumb children, uh, about the preexistence. And so when I look at the creation story and I see the details of that there. So, for instance, Satan is there and he's teaching his plan and trying to convince Adam and Eve. Sounds a lot like the pre-existence where Satan was there and presenting his side of the plan. There's no death before the fall in the pre-mortal life. And so there's also no death in the, uh, I'm sorry, there's no death before the fall in the, in the garden. There's also no death in the pre-mortal life before we fall and come to earth. There's this idea of being not quite completely informed in the garden. Adam and Eve don't really fully know right from wrong. And I think Heavenly Father was fully acknowledging that in the pre-mortal life, 
not getting a body left us not fully knowing and understanding what the experiences of life would bring. And so I, I see lots of those. There's about a dozen of those kind of connecting dots between the garden and the premortal life. Uh, when I look at other uh, nuanced views I have, um, about tithing, I think we've hit on, you've... Oh, t- Oh, that's a good one. Thank you for yeah. bringing, bringing that up. Uh, so tithing, tithing throughout our church's history has been practiced in multiple ways. There is absolute validity to the idea that tithing could be paid on net or gross. And I would add even surplus. And I think the church even recognizes this. You will almost never really find any kind of substantive talk on tithing that imposes the definition that you should pay on your gross wages. Rather, we are giving a lot of kind of uh, couched words and couch statements that imply that uh, tithing needs to be paid. Uh, it's 10% of your interest, meaning income, paid annually. But nothing much more beyond that. And the first presidency released a statement back in the 70s, I believe it was, where they said that it was up to every member to decide what is an honest tithing and that nobody was to say more or less than that and that they were to pay it accordingly and that was the end of it. They didn't really go out of their way to define it beyond that. And so me personally, I'll just frankly tell you, I I pay on my surplus. Um, I don't think it's the only appropriate way to pay. I think one has the right to go to Heavenly Father, receive inspiration through the Holy Ghost, to know whether they should pay on their gross, their net, or their surplus. And I personally, having taken it to the Lord and worked that out with Him, felt inspired to pay on my surplus. And so that's what I'm doing. And I've often challenged anybody to kind of come back and say, I couldn't do that. Uh, but I don't think there's anything out there that would give them room to say such a thing. There's been a t- lot of talk, especially this month, about... Um and the world predictions, the church has issued a couple of statements warning people not to uh, put too much into some of the books that have been written and some uh, some of the speeches that have been given. Where would you, and I if, if, hope you can, you're okay with me asking you just a direct question, if your bishop tomorrow said, Bill, put it all in the pile, um, it's consecration time, it's the end of the world, uh, what would you do? Would you just follow immediately or would you have any pause? Uh, first off, where did he get it from? I got to call a stake president and see, uh, you know, if this came down from church headquarters or if he's just gone off the deep end. If, uh, if this is something that's coming from higher up, then again, I pray about it. And my first inclination would be to lean towards doing it because at some point I am expecting Christ to come back again. But I will add that unlike those who are kind of setting themselves up for these last days, you know, next Tuesday, Actually, last Tuesday, right? And uh, with the blood moon and all that stuff going on, that the church has really got some long-term plans here in the work. Even in this past conference just now, there was this quote. I can't remember who said it, Elder Ballard or who, but somebody said something along the lines of, there were still things that needed to happen before Christ comes again. Um, City Creek uh, Mall seems like a long-term project. The church has invested a ton of money, and it's going to take decades and decades for them to recoup all of that out of there. The church uh, recently talked about owning a bunch of land in Florida that they were going to sell off where a city would be built. That seems kind of like a long-term plan. Uh, I just don't see the church as anticipating Christ's return in the next six months. But if five years from now my bishop says that, uh, it's coming from higher-ups, I'm praying about it, I feel good about it, then uh, 
then I guess I would lean towards doing it. So you're saying when your bishop asks you to do something, you still rely on personal revelation? Yeah. Brigham Young talked about uh, not just trusting the elders blindly, that we needed to seek out uh, the Holy Ghost. So if if your bishop asks you to work in the state garden, you say, well, hold on, hold on a minute. I need to pray about that. You know, you can't go around praying about every single thing that happens, uh, every single thing that's asked of you. I would, I would draw the line at things that I worry will jeopardize or harm a relationship or will harm an individual. Those are the things that I'm really careful of. And so if I'm asked to go volunteer a morning at the steak farm, seems like a no brainer. I'll go do it. If my bishop asked me to, uh, do something that seems like it's going to hurt somebody, marginalize somebody, hurt a relationship, or damage uh, something within a family or or an individual, then I'm going to be much more careful and seek out the Holy Ghost first. So you're okay following your leaders? You just want to get the you want to just get confirmation from God first, right? On serious matters. I mean, I remember you know serving as a counselor and a bishopric and as a bishop, there were times where you needed where the bishop needed me or I needed my counselors to walk out of the room and be on the same page as me, even if they disagreed. And I certainly respect that within the church, that there are times where when a decision is made, that as one who sustains and supports that leader, you need to walk out and act as if it's your decision, even if it isn't. But there is a line if that decision is going to hurt another person. And so I think we, we most of us are just going to walk through life and do those small things. But like as you point out, on the big things, I'm going to consult the Holy Ghost. Well, that's it for me, Bill. I've gone through all my questions and I sure appreciate you talking to me as long as you have. It's almost midnight. I bet your, I bet your sweet wife has gone to bed. I bet your kids are all in bed. I bet your family's uh, down for the night and I bet they, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with Dang me. Dang it, Chris. You know what the problem is? If she goes to bed first, she starts snoring and then uh, I can't get to sleep. So this could be, this could be an all nighter here. Well, once again, I sure appreciate okay. it. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Have a great night.